right. Thank you guys very much for chatting. By the way, I don't know, I, I, Jefferson and David, I don't know if you guys could tell, but there were people that were tapping their feet and clapping a little bit. So Jefferson and David were doing a song called Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds, which came out in 1965. And uh, part of the reason they were doing that is uh, because we're starting um, a series uh, this week that will go through the month of November uh, on the book of Ecclesiastes. And the words from that song are all taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, right? So that's we, I, I texted Jefferson halfway through the week and I said, hey man, what if we do this? And he's like, I am one step ahead of you. I've already been talking about it. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, it's interesting, Krista and I were watching uh, a movie on Netflix this past week that had come out a couple years ago. And it was interesting because even in that movie, there was a quote from Ecclesiastes. And so Ecclesiastes is this book just for those of you who don't know much about sort of the landscape of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, and it's actually a genre of literature called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is always written for the purpose of really kind of forcing you to think about things, and sometimes in uncomfortable ways, right? Sometimes that's how Jesus uh, got, he got us to think in uncomfortable ways by using parables. Sometimes in wisdom literature, whoever it is, Solomon or some of these other authors, will sort of present information to you in ways that you're try- you just can't quite figure out, but it forces you to think about it. And so that's part of uh, what is going on here in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. A couple quick quotes. Um, Thomas Wolfe, author, author, had this to say about the book of Ecclesiastes. For all I have ever seen or learned, this book, that is Ecclesiastes, seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I'm not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing that I've ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound, right? That's very, very high praise for this book of Ecclesiastes. Herman Melville, the the guy that wrote Moby Dick, had this to say. He said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books, It's the truest of all books. It's probably written probably about 3,000 years ago. So it's been around for a long time. But I guarantee you this week, if you pick it up and kind of begin to look through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see that the wisdom that is found therein still has much to say about today. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Uh, Most people throughout history have said that it's Solomon, although there are other people who have other arguments for who it might have been. Uh, What we do know is that the main speaker in the book is a man named Koheleth, which means uh, the assembler or the preacher or teacher. And we know that he is speaking in this book. So let me just read this little quote. He says this, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So sounds like that could be Solomon. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. That's a key phrase. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So it may be Solomon or maybe someone writing in what's called the Solomonic tradition. But we also know there's another voice in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's somebody who's an editor maybe or a compiler. Uh, theologians call him a framer because he begins the book and ends the book. Here's what he has to say. Not only was the teacher wise, so he's speaking about uh, Koheleth, or he's talking about Solomon, if that's who it is. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now again, wisdom literature 
whether it's Proverbs or the book of Ecclesiastes, it's always concerned with human flourishing. What the book of Ecclesiastes wants you to do is to think about life. The book of Ecclesiastes wants you to think about death, wants you to think about work and wisdom and wealth and pleasure, right? And, and what's the meaning of it all? It wants you to flourish as a human being. That's why God included the book of Ecclesiastes in Scripture. Now, before we jump in to today's sermon, let me just take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you include in your word um, books like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Proverbs that really um, cause us uh, to think and force us to wrestle with uncomfortable topics. And so, Father, I pray that that would happen today. I pray that it would happen over the next month, that as we read through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, that we would indeed think about these big issues of life and whether life has meaning or not. And so, Father, we pray that we would find our wisdom and our truth through you and through your word. We pray all of these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So some of you may have heard of a woman named Jen Fulweiler. She's an author and a blogger and a radio host. Uh, She became famous several years ago because she wrote a book called Something Other Than God, Something Other Than God. Uh, On her website, she has this to say about herself. She says, I am an INTP. If you're not familiar with Myers-Briggs personality types, let me put it this way. I once saw a science fiction movie about a man who was a brain in a jar, and I thought, what a great life, right? So any of you who doesn't know anything about personality typing, anyway. She goes on to say this. She says, my love language is being left alone in silent rooms. My love language is being left alone in silent rooms. She's giving us a little picture of herself. She then goes on to say, my husband and I have six kids under the age of 12, which makes her wiring that much more ironic, right? She then says, we live in a three-bedroom house. Yep, all eight of us. So this is giving you a picture of who she is. Now, the reason her book was famous is because she grew up as an atheist, and she had a, what she calls, in her words, a crazy religious awakening, right? And it, she sort of talks about how she converted and became a believer, and then she started not only writing this book, but then sort of a blog online talking about her misadventures with religion, and in particular, Christianity. Again, the book of her conversion is called Something Other Than God. She grew up, she says, in a loving family, but one in which religion was painted as clearly false, right? In fact, religion was very, very negatively uh, viewed in her home. She goes on to say that she never remembers a time when she believed in God as a child, never believed in God, right? In fact, she said she was raised on a diet of science, reason, and evidence-based rational thought. Her bedtime reading, she says, was Carl Sagan's astronomy book, The Cosmos, right? So this is the kind of home she grew up in. She says this, from a young age, she knew that the world ran according to a well-established set of natural laws, and science was the de facto way of understanding everything, right? She goes on to say that she remained a happy atheist as an adult and into the very early years of her marriage until she became pregnant and had her first child. And here's what she has to say about having her first child. She says this, and I quote from the book, I looked down, that is, at her child, I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheistic, materialistic perspective, he's a randomly evolved collection of chemical reactions, right? That's all he is, right? If there's no God, if there's no transcendence, if uh, evolution is true, and if there's no God, then, then all this baby is is just this randomly collected uh, and evolving uh, group of chemical reactions. She goes on to say, 
And I realize if that's true, then all the love that I feel for him is nothing more than chemical reactions in my brain. And I looked down at him and I thought, that is not true. It's not the truth. It can't be true. And so it was from looking at her infant son that she came to believe in God and became a Christian. It's amazing. Right? Part of what this book of Ecclesiastes is doing, this book of Ecclesiastes is forcing us to say, what do we believe about the nature of reality? Do we believe that there is no transcendent reality, that there's no God? If so, what the author is telling us is, then life has no meaning, right? Or, on the other hand, if there is a God, even if we can't understand it, that at least what we know about this world is that it's mysterious. Is it meaningless or is it mysterious? That's really the main idea of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Just sort of follow along with me, if you will. I, the teacher, so this is Koheleth speaking, maybe Solomon, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, reading the book of Ecclesiastes is so tricky. It's really hard because if you read it, and if you don't have a framework to understand it, you go, well, wow, God, why did you put that in the Bible, right? I thought life did have meaning, right? I thought life did matter. So it's very important that you take a look at the phrase there that says, under the sun, because that phrase, under the sun, echoes back about 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? So it's clearly a very significant idea. So here's what the theologians have to say. Tim Keller, Ravi Zacharias, Trimper Longman, probably the, uh, the foremost uh, Old Testament theologian out there, all argue that the phrase, under the sun, essentially means life without God or life without transcendence. So what the author, Kohelet, right, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, if there's no God, then life is meaningless, meaningless, or it's vanity, vanity. And if we try to make sense of life under the sun, apart from that, we just can't, right? Life has no meaning. We're just collections of atoms and chemical reactions, and there's no right, no wrong, no good, no bad. It also seems to say throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that this phrase under the sun can also mean life from a purely earthly perspective. In other words, sometimes even believers can look at life under the sun and we can be utterly confused about what in the world God is doing under the sun. In order to read the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to know what that phrase means and why it's important. The other phrase or word that we see that pops up again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is the word that's translated meaningless or vanity. And so when you read it, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, or vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, what that is is they're translating a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is hebel, H-E-B-E-L, hebel. And it literally, literally means a vapor or a mist, something that can't be grasped onto, something that doesn't say. And so throughout Scripture, not just in Ecclesiastes, but throughout all of Scripture, that word hebel is used over and over again, and it's really used in two different ways. One of the ways it's used is to mean absurdity or nonsense, right? Meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity. So it's absurdity or nonsense. So let me give you some illustrations of that which is absurd. One, I've never actually watched this show, but I'm pretty sure that SpongeBob SquarePants is relatively absurd. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know. It seems pretty, it's pretty absurd, pretty meaningless. Uh, another thing that seems relatively meaningless, although enjoyable, is every single Will Ferrell movie that exists. That's Will Ferrell dressed as Little Debbie. 
And for any of you who are sports fans, you know that the team formerly known as the the, uh, San Diego Chargers, utterly meaningless. It's my favorite team, sorry. Anyway, so it can mean vanity. It can mean meaningless. It can mean absurdity. It can mean nonsense. But it can also mean something else in Scripture. That's just one of the ways it's used. The other way it's used is to mean something that is unfathomable, right? Something that is mysterious. We see that throughout Scripture as well. And so when that word is used, like what are examples of something that's mysterious? Well, something that's mysterious is the expanse of the universe. And so we've got a picture here of the expanse of the universe. Unfortunately, our projector is not good. But if you, it were good, you could see that it's really mysterious and awesome, right? We know that something else that is mysterious is we know the migration of monarch butterflies, millions upon millions upon millions of monarch butterflies. Um, they migrate over 3,000 miles. What an amazing mystery that somehow that's in their tiny little DNA, their little brains. Also, another thing that's mysterious, the San Diego Chargers, right? Why are they so terrible? We'll never know. I don't know. Anyway, so in the book of Ecclesiastes, what is this word, hebel, what does it mean? What I'm going to argue is that it means both, that at times it means meaningless and sometimes it means mysterious, that it also depends on your perspective, where you're coming from, right? Um, Part of, again, what wisdom literature seeks to do, definitely what the book of Ecclesiastes seeks to do, is it wants to make you think. It wants to make you uncomfortable. It makes you want to wrestle with these big ideas. I think the the author is showing you both sides of the coin in order to make you wrestle with these these, uh, ideas of of meaning and, and what life is all about. One of my favorite professors, in fact, he married us or jointly married us in uh, after college, was a man named Dr. Clark. I had several different theology classes with him, but one of the classes I took with him was called Calvin's Institutes. And in Calvin's Institutes and in his other class, Dr. Clark would always play devil's advocate. And so he would take one particular theological side, or he would take the atheistic side, or he would take some side of something that was clearly false, but because he was smarter than we were when we were 18, 19, and 20, he would always be able to argue sort of the, the truth claim of that idea much better than we could. And he knew what he was doing because what it made us do was it made us engage in the debate, right? Instead of just sitting there twiddling our thumbs or staring off into the distance, it made us go back and read up. It made us sort of argue with one another to try to figure out what the truth was. That's very much what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing. So sometimes this word hebel means meaningless. And what he's saying, this teacher Koheleth is saying, is that under the sun, in other words, if there's no God, then life is absurd. If you look at life and if you don't believe in God, then life is absurd. It's meaningless. If life is just about survival of the fittest, then you can do whatever you want, right? Do whatever works. If life is only the product of time plus chance plus matter, then there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no bad, there is no wise, there is no unwise. There's only what works, right? There's only my power over someone else in order to get what I want. The greatest minds throughout the course of history have understood that this is the logical conclusion of believing in a world under the sun without God. Uh, Dostoevsky, who wrote Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, has this to say in various places throughout those two literary works. He says this, if God is dead, if under the sun there is no God, then all things are permissible. Part of what he understood, and I've got a picture up there maybe that can come up of Dostoevsky, but part of what he's arguing is that if there's no God, if there's no transcendence, then all things are permissible. He understood it absolutely correctly. Albert Camus 
whose name I'm not going to pr- pronounce in French, but he was a French philosopher, and his particular school of philosophy was called absurdism, right? How, how interesting is that? Absurdism. Here's what he had to say about this idea of there being no God. He says, if we believe in nothing, if nothing has any meaning, and if we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has any importance, right? Brilliant, brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant thinkers who are saying, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. If there is no God, then nothing has any importance. It is meaningless, right? Nietzsche, uh, the, the, the person who argued that God is dead and also argued the implications of what that meant, says this. He says, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. In other words, you know, the rights of women, right, or the whites, rights of children or human dignity, none of that has any self-evidence whatsoever if there's no God. By breaking one's main concept out of Christianity, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Nothing necessary remains in one's hands. In other words, if there is no God, right, if there is no transcendent reality, then, then do whatever you want. Life is meaningless. Now, what's ironic about this is that Nietzsche believed that was true, right? He was a very pure atheist and sought to live consistently with that sort of uh, view that there was no God, and yet he died in Turin because uh, he witnessed a horse being beaten, and he rushed in to protect the horse from the man beating it. In other words, he, he couldn't even live consistently with his own worldview because there was something in his created nature that, that knew he needed to protect life, that life did have meaning. Does that make sense? But that's one of the ways in which this author is pushing us to think. He's saying, look, if you think that uh, there's no God under the sun, if you think there's no God, then you need to live according to that reality. You need to deal with the fact that life is utterly and completely absurd, that it's meaningless, right? Just go ahead and get real with what you truly believe. And so he's arguing for that. He's pushing you to that. He's also pushing us in a different direction. And he's also pushing us to deal with the fact that life is also mysterious, right? This idea of, you know, you can live particularly as someone who does believe in God. You can live as someone who is a Christian living under the sun without being able to see what is over the sun. In other words, God and his purposes. And for you, living under the sun means that you see life as mysterious, right? And so again, without any eternal perspective, if we can't see what God is doing in cancer and in sickness and in floods, if we can't see what he's doing, then we can at least say it's not meaningless, but that it is mysterious, right? And so here's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 have to say about this idea of, of mystery. Again, this is the, the author, Kohelet, right? Maybe Solomon, maybe somebody else. He's saying on the one hand, uh, under the sun, life is meaningless. But on the other hand, when you can't see what's going on above the sun, it can be seen as mysterious. Here's what he says. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's a mystery. It's mysterious. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. Without the perspective of God, the perspective above the sun, 
Without that perspective, much of life, if not most of life, is an utter and complete mystery, right? We see that all throughout our lives. We also see it throughout Scripture. How often must Abraham have asked, God, what are you doing? What are you doing while waiting for the son that God had promised him? How about Joseph, right? Uh, Sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused and imprisoned in Egypt. What about Moses wandering in the desert before God called him? Your people are enslaved. What are you doing? Where are you? Don't you care? You can just imagine Moses saying those things. Elijah tried to quit the ministry and walk away from God when he saw Jezebel in power and the rampant idolatry of Israel. He must have been saying, what are you doing, God? Right? What's going on? How about the disciples? What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing, Lord? Why would you go to Jerusalem? They'll kill you there, right? Unless we know what God is doing above the sun, then life is mysterious. It's a mystery, right? But the good news is eventually God provided Abraham with a son, right? Eventually Joseph discovered that God had sent him to Egypt to save many lives. Eventually God used Moses to lead the Israelites from slavery, God eventually showed Elijah that he had preserved a remnant of faithful Israelites, and the disciples eventually realized that Jesus had to suffer and had to die just like he had told them when he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Right? Part of what Jesus was saying is you can't see it now. But life is mysterious when you can't see above the sun, when all you can see is under the sun. William Cooper, an 18th century poet and hymn writer who struggled mightily with depression, had this to say, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You know, so many of us in this room this morning can probably identify with what he's saying there, right? We've we've ridden in the storms of life, right? In fact, we've probably been swallowed by the storms of life. Your parents' divorce, the death of a loved one, something that was done to you as a child. There are a thousand different ways in which we can't make sense of life, but what we can say is that he plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm, that God is mysterious, right? So the the question I think for all of us is this, what do we do with the book of Ecclesiastes? What do we do with it? I think the answer is you've got a choice. And I think that's part of what the author is doing. He's saying, look, you can look at life under the sun in one of two ways. Either you can look at life as if it is completely and utterly meaningless or you can look at life as if it is completely and utterly mysterious. Both of those perspectives, frankly, require a leap of faith, right? It it takes faith to believe that meaning, truth, and beauty, and wives, and children, and parents are all just the product of evolutionary biology, right? That's a big leap of faith because it doesn't actually match up with any of our reality, right? Or you can choose to believe that God is a great author, orchestrating the chaos of sin and suffering into a great story of redemption. The choice is up to you. It's either meaningless or it's mysterious. 
I mentioned Dostoevsky a little while ago and talked about how this was one of the big themes that he wrestled with. I'm going to read a quote from the Brothers Karamazov that I read about once a year because it's just that good. Here's what he has to say about this story, this great story of mysterious redemption. He says this, My task is to explain to you as quickly as possible my essence, that is, what sort of man I am, what I believe in, and what I hope for. Is that right? And therefore, I declare that I accept God pure and simple. I humbly confess that I do not have any ability to resolve such questions. I have a Euclidean mind, that is a mathematical mind, an earthly mind, and therefore it is not for us to resolve things that are not of this world. And so I accept God, not only willingly, but moreover, I also accept his wisdom and his purpose, which are so completely unknown to us. I believe in order, in the meaning of life. I believe in eternal harmony in which we're all supposed to merge. I believe in the word for whom the universe is yearning and who himself was with God, who himself is God. I have a childlike conviction that all the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over, that the whole offensive comedy of human contradictions will disappear like a pitiful mirage, a vile concoction of man's Euclidean mind, feeble and puny as an atom, and that ultimately at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all human hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. Let this, let all of this come true and be revealed. I don't know about you, but I'm with Dostoevsky on this, and C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien, and John Lennox, and Tim Keller, and most of the people sitting in this room this morning. I believe that life, all of it, every little piece, every little person, every small event, every great tragedy, though mysterious to us under the sun, is utterly meaningful because God is the great author of the human story. He's the great conductor of the eternal symphony, and he is weaving all things, good and bad, small and large, together to form the greatest ending of the greatest story that any of us have ever known. It's not meaningless, it's mysterious. Let's take one moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you awaken us to the reality of what we believe and the reality of who we are. And Father, I pray this morning that even through the book of Ecclesiastes and through your Holy Spirit and and through the believers in this room, Father, that you would um, awaken us to the reality of who you are. Father, that you are a good God that you love us and that you're pursuing us, Father. I pray that this morning you would awaken us to the reality of your son, Jesus, that he is, he's our big brother who came to fight for us. And to defend us. Father, and in the greatest... Um, mysterious event of all, Father. He uh, offers us redemption and salvation and the clearest picture of you. And so, Father, it is in your Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.